Welcome. Good morning. Glad to see you today at One Ancient Hope or at home as One Ancient Hope as well. The 16th century poet George Herbert, he once wrote, He that lives in hope dances without music. He that lives in hope dances without music. This is both a strange and a beautiful picture, isn't it? Again, he that lives in hope dances without music. What this makes me think of is those silent dance parties. They became popular like five or so years ago where everyone has headphones on and they might be listening to the same uh, station or they might be dancing to their own thing, but they're all dancing. Um, sometimes it's called the silent disco. And if you were an observer to this, it would look absurd. I mean, you see all these people dancing. There's no noise. There's no audible sound. And they're all dancing. Of course, if you have the headphones on, it feels natural. You start dancing, moving to the rhythm. But otherwise, it's very strange. But even stranger than that, of course, would be to see someone dancing without headphones at all. I mean, imagine walking in downtown Iowa City. There's someone dancing. There's no audible music, no headphones, but they're there doing the Viennese waltz or the shuffle or the Macarena. The beautiful absurdity of this is actually a, a good picture of faith. It's a great picture of faith. To hope in God's grace is to move to a rhythm that other people may not hear. It is to act out a drama that others cannot imagine. It is to glide through life guided by a tune that plays only in your own heart. The hope of our faith makes no sense from an observer on the outside. It looks absurd, especially during these times. Now, here at One Ancient Hope, as we've talked about in the beginning of this, of this liturgy today, we follow the church calendar, which is to say that time, all of it, belongs to God. And we want even our calendars to be gospel-centered, to tell the story of Christ. And that's what, that's what the church calendar, the liturgical year is. It's based on this life of Christ, which you may be very familiar with, you may be unfamiliar with. But it begins even before his birth with Advent, and it ends even after his death and resurrection, even after his ascension with the sending of the Spirit at Pentecost. Now, following this year is, is quite simple, especially if you go to a church that follows it. All you have to do is participate in those rhythms, but it is formational. It's a formational way to follow Jesus. And this Sunday, as we've mentioned many times before, begins that year. This is the beginning of Advent. And Advent, for those not familiar with it, comes from that Latin word Adventus, which means arrival or coming. It's a season of preparation and waiting, joining with the ancient Israelites who waited for the birth of their Messiah. Advent marks a beginning 
of this Christian calendar, which actually doesn't begin with Christ. And I, I think that's really some profound wisdom that the church had, is they actually begin the year in waiting. Not with the first thing, but before the first thing. It's this time of waiting and longing. And, and I think that's because we live still in a time of waiting and longing. So to exclude that from the story would be to dismiss a very true part of our stories. To be a Christian is to become proficient at waiting. And it's this time of waiting, of course, for the, for the Messiah's first coming, but it's also uh, about this future arrival of Christ as king. It's when he'll come to consummate the kingdom, as Michael was talking about, complete fullness, peace on earth. It's about a past arrival as Christ as a baby and a future arrival as Christ as a king. But finally, it's a time of preparation for Christ's daily arrival in our hearts. It's this threefold arrival of past, future, and present. And, and that fills Advent with this deep sense of anticipation and waiting. It's a time to recognize the darkness the things in ourselves and in our world that need the coming of Christ to renew them. We, friends, have this profound opportunity during Advent to stare at the darkness long enough to see that single candle of hope flickering in the night. The sign that God is with us, Emmanuel. Now, during this particular Advent, the image I'm offering is of a tree in winter. Right? That's the name of this series, like trees in winter. Uh, what I'm imagining is a tree sort of hit with the traumatic frozen weather, the freezing temperatures, this dry, brittle air, a lack of sunlight. The tree has lost its leaves, its color, its vitality doesn't bear any fruit or flowers. It's dull, drab, and gray. And my prediction is that a lot of us may feel like trees in winter this time of year. Nine months of COVID has begun to suck all the joy and wonder out of life. And this Christmas just isn't going to be like usual. For many of us, it's going to lack the color and the sweetness, the dimension that comes with all the regular cultural festivity of the Christmas season. There will be no shopping in busy stores. There will be no big feasts with friends. And if you add to this all of the very real losses that have occurred during this pandemic, which at this point, what, it's over a quarter million of lives in our country alone, and it's obvious, Christmas is not going to be the same this year. Uh, Elizabeth Pennock, who is a professor of counseling at Reformed Theological Seminary, she, she names what we are experiencing as collective trauma. She says, one way to think about the impact of trauma is to think about the losses. She says, at various points in this pandemic, many of us have lost routines, vacations, jobs, 
and the ability to gather with others. Events have been canceled, our work has changed, and screens have become a nearly universal mediator of relationship. So I think we've all experienced some of these particular losses. But she also says that with collective trauma, there are broader, more more collective losses that we can all identify. And these are the losses that change the way we interact with the world and with one another. I'm choosing four of these broader losses to address during Advent because I think they meet very well the traditional themes of Advent. So this week, we'll talk about trauma as a loss of hope. Next week, we'll address trauma as a loss of connection. After that, we'll explore trauma as a loss of a sense of agency. And finally, trauma as a loss of a sense of safety. Now, I am not um, a counselor or a psychologist. I'm a pastor and a theologian, so I will not be addressing, even though talking about trauma, it will not be um, clinical because I don't even have the language to address it that way. Now, it's hard to wait in anticipation without hope. And ancient Israel, of course, knew something of this. They say it was around 400 years. 400 years of prophetic silence. 400 years without a word from God. They were slaves. They were freed. They were wanderers in the wilderness. And they lived in a land of milk and honey. They developed a society, a government, a kingdom. They were successful, conquering their enemies. They were kicked out of their country, defeated by enemies, and lived as exiles. They were allowed back in to rebuild what had been destroyed. And then they were occupied by enemies and despisers. In today's language, they were a people who had a repeated experience of collective trauma. And now they were waiting. 400 years of waiting. Generation upon generation upon generation upon generation upon generation of silence. Waiting for God to speak waiting for a Messiah, for someone to deliver them back to those King David good old days. They were waiting in all the different ways that all of us wait, right? Some occupied their time waiting by helping to build up an army, an army of faithful Jews who would be ready when that Messiah came, ready to enact power. And then others spent their time waiting, networking, networking with those who already were in power. Because when that Messiah came, well, it'd be great if there were already some relationships with the Roman officials so he can kind of just step in and rule. I mean, the Messiah would need good connections, right? And then others just gave up waiting completely. You know, if God was done speaking, done delivering us, fine. Let's find another God who seems to be working right now or figure out the best way to enjoy what we have. What good is waiting anyways? 
And then there was our couple in the text today, Zechariah and Elizabeth, who waited in hope and anticipation. The way Luke introduces them is, is really interesting. He introduces them as people that the reader is supposed to like. You're really supposed to like these people. They're good people, he's saying. They come from a good lineage, good family. They were taught proper morals. They're pure people. He tells us Zechariah was a priest, and his wife was from the high priestly lineage of Aaron. And then he tells us that they were both righteous in the sight of God, observing all of the Lord's commands and decrees blamelessly. Luke is letting us know that by any standard in the first century Judaism, that these two are honorable people. They are blameless in the Lord's sight. That's in verse 5 and 6, which is why when we get to verse 7, this would have been really startling for the original hearers. But they had no child because Elizabeth was barren and both were advanced in years. The idea that God controls the womb, it's firmly embedded in Israel's scriptures. And the result was that it often got interpreted that children signified God's blessing. They were a source of honor in the community. And therefore, on the other hand, childlessness, well, that was a sign of divine punishment and a source of shame. So the dilemma in our text is introduced very early, just in the third verse. Why is this godly couple experiencing this loss? See, by presenting them as blameless, Luke invites us into the narrative pathos of their pain, shame, and hopelessness. He invites us to feel the tension here. Now, I don't know about you, but when someone is suffering in a way that doesn't make sense to me, I often try to bring some meaning to it by finding someone to blame. And it's always easier if the person to blame is the sufferer themselves. It's always easier to make sense of the suffering if I can say, well, they must have done something to deserve it. That's why it's happening. Zechariah, he must have done something to deserve this. Maybe he was lazy or selfish or cruel. I do this and, and maybe you do too. It's a common tactic, right? That it, it, it sort of protects us from the emotional cost of empathy. Maybe they must have deserved it. Well, Luke, <laughs> Luke simply won't allow that for his readers. He's saying they're blameless and they're suffering. You have to hold both at the same time. You can't explain it away. You have to feel it. Verse 8, now while he was serving as priest before God and when his division was on duty, according to the custom of the priesthood, he was chosen by lot to enter the temple of the Lord and burn incense. And the whole multitude of people were praying outside at the hour of incense. So here's a husband and a wife that typify the right kind of waiting for the Messiah. In Luke's gospel, they sort of cosmically represent how all of Israel was supposed to wait. With ethical lives set apart by worship, prayer, and sacrifice. For all of their long lives, the text says they're old, Zechariah and Elizabeth were like all of Israel. Waiting and longing for a prophetic word from God about a Messiah. 
they felt the weight of those 400 years of silence. So Zechariah goes to the temple as a priest to present prayers on behalf of this longing of all of Israel. He might have prayed like the psalmist, how long, O Lord? Zechariah going to the temple was like a man dancing without music. Others would have said, why are you wasting your time going to the temple? God has clearly abandoned us. They didn't hear the music. Now, now when Zechariah goes to the temple, I understand this. It's kind of strange. He's a priest. Why is he going to the temple for a set period of time? Why doesn't he just, you know, work there nine to five every day? Well, the priesthood during this time, it, it was so full of people who their lineage would have called them priests that you only had to go for a few days a year, maybe a couple weeks out of the year. Um, and you would, you would stay there for that time. So Zechariah shows up during his time to serve. And his particular role is chosen by casting lots. You, you're probably familiar with this. Almost like rolling dice that have Hebrew inscriptions on them. And this was done as a way um, to sort of circumvent human will. Because the thought was, we're not just going to choose or let a person choose. We're going to like put it into God's hands, they would have thought by casting these lots. It's a way to give deference to God's will. And Luke includes this uh, to let us know that God is involved here. This isn't just that Zechariah wants to be the incense burner, so they're going to let him. They cast lots. Zechariah gets the very honorable role of incense burner. And it's honorable because in the text it says he gets to go into the temple to pray while the others remain outside praying. Because he has to go inside to light the incense. The altar of incense was located inside the sanctuary itself. uh, In the outer chamber or holy place. So on, on one side of this altar of incense was a curtained doorway. That was leading to the inner chamber or the holy of holies. Now, this inner chamber, the Holy of Holies, this was the locus of God's glory. Could only be entered one day a year by one person, the high priest. So the offering of incense, then, it would have brought Zechariah as close to this Holy of Holies, as close to the presence of God as any person other than the high priest could have possibly been. Right? Many priests might never experience that honor. They, the lots might never get cast where they get to be the incense burner. And nobody who's not a priest would ever get to be that close. So you've got to understand that God is one of the central actors, the central actor in this story. And the fact that Zechariah is so close to the presence of God is very important. Because it's, it's in the temple, it's in this holy, sacred place where for the Israelite imagination, heaven and earth, they sort of overlap. This is where God speaks. Prayer is the channel on which hope broadcasts. Verse 13, but the angel said to him, do not be afraid, Zechariah, for your prayer has been heard and your wife Elizabeth will bear you a son and you shall call his name John and you will have joy and gladness and many will rejoice at his birth. For he will be great before the Lord. 
and he must not drink wine or strong drink, and he will be filled with the Holy Spirit, even from his mother's womb. And he will turn many of the children of Israel to the Lord their God, and he will go before him in the spirit and the power of Elijah to turn the hearts of the fathers to the children and the disobedient to the wisdom of the just to make ready for the Lord a people prepared. Listen to this promise to Zechariah. Zechariah and Elizabeth, they aren't just this image of how a vast group of people, all of Israel, should collectively wait. They are that. But they also have a very personal and intimate thing that they are also waiting for. So yes, they're waiting for a Messiah, but we know that they're barren and childless. So, so don't miss this, okay? Because God, in his glorious kindness, he uses this couple's very personal longing to bring about the answer to all of Israel's longing. He could have had any child become John the Baptist. Any of them. This, this forerunner, this preparer for Christ. But he has this old, barren couple become the parents. You see, he's able to address their deeply personal and intimate heart needs at the same time and in the same way that he addresses the entire world's needs of a savior. God interweaves cosmic salvation history with something so personal and intimate. It grows inside you. He answers their prayers with a child named John. The name John means God is gracious. You can imagine those words of Isaiah that we read just being shouted from the rooftops by Elizabeth. Sing, barren women, you who never bore a child. Burst into song, shout for joy, you who were never in labor, because more are the children of the desolate woman than of her who has a husband, says the Lord. There's an absurdity to all this. There's an absurdity to that text in Isaiah. It's almost as absurd as someone dancing without music. So in that absurdity, in verse 18, Zechariah responds to the angel. How shall I know this? For I am an old man and my wife is advanced in years. In other words, how in the world is this possible? In fact, angel of the Lord, I'm telling you, this is impossible. We can't have kids. We've surely tried, believe me. You're telling me to dance, but I don't hear any music. Even the hopeful, faithful Zechariah can't comprehend this level of hopefulness. It's too good to be true. This is hope beyond hope. This comes from Romans 4, verses 18 and 19. It's talking about Abraham. It says this, In hope, he, being Abraham, believed against hope. In hope, he believed against hope. That he should become the father of many nations, as he had been told. So shall your offspring be. He did not weaken in faith when he considered his own body, which was as good as dead 
since he was about a hundred years old, it says, or when he considered the barrenness of Sarah's womb. Hope against hope. So yes, for Zechariah, this is an incomprehensible surprise, but it's also a situated surprise. While it seemingly comes out of nowhere, it also has some context. Uh, Because for God's people, you see, there's a history of things like this. It doesn't make sense to human logic. It certainly doesn't seem to follow the rules of biology. And yet, for the Israelite, this sort of thing isn't completely unheard of. And this is where um, we're given sort of the distinguishing factor of Christian hope. It's not optimism. There's nothing wrong with optimism unless, unless we mistake that optimism for hope. Optimism comes about by surveying the possibilities, right? And making a, a sort of hypothesis of positive thinking. It's a positive view of the future based on a positive read of the circumstances. And that can be helpful. But if we call this hope and our positive hypothesis is wrong, it makes God a liar based on something he never promised. And this is why it says hope deferred makes the heart sick. Optimism, yes, has to do with good things in the future, but it's good things that are already sort of latent in the past and the present. It's an unfolding of what is already here. Again, survey the past and the present, extrapolate about what is likely to happen in the future, and if the prospects are good, become optimistic. But hope, Christian hope, and hope in the case of Zechariah and Abraham, is hope against hope. You might say it's divine hope against optimism. When even the optimist despairs, hope prevails. Hope doesn't come from surveying the situation and and making a positive deduction. It comes from outside of the situation entirely. It's always a surprise. In our story, this word of hope, it comes from outside of Zechariah, even outside of any sense of physical creation that you might be able to see. It comes from an angel. And hope says that which seems impossible is not only possible, but it's really happening. Last Advent, I noticed uh, both of these realities at work in my heart. Hope and optimism. So I'm just going to get personal, share, share a story here. Um, in August 2019, Sarah, my wife and I, we took this leap of faith. We moved from New York City, left our jobs. We moved to California with our three-month-old son uh, for my wife to be able to attend grad school. I assumed somewhat naively, surely I'll be able to get some sort of job that will pay enough money for us to live and for my wife to go to school. Well, the only job I could find was at a cafe. It was a full-time job, but even working full-time, including all my tips, we were at about two-thirds what we needed to be making to pay for all the bills and everything. Um, 
because my wife had school two days a week, those were my two days off. That's when I watched our son. Every other day, I was working and commuting uh, quite a bit in L.A. traffic. Um, wasn't making enough money and didn't have any time. I had to work Sundays because the two days I needed off were when my wife had class. So we weren't able to attend church. We weren't able to make any relationships. We didn't know anyone there. And we were constantly eating through our savings every month. I felt trapped. I felt like the situation was barren. I did not know how to get a different job. Um, all of my experience was in churches, so it didn't look great on paper for any businesses or anything like that. And it, I couldn't go to any churches to meet anyone. So felt really, really trapped. The only good side of all this was I had a lot of time to, um, to pray, be in communication with God because I had a long commute. So I'd, so I'd pray during my commute and I felt a sense that God was saying, Matt, you trusted me to move your whole family across the country. And yet, as soon as you got there, you took the first job you could get and you were freaking out. Trust me that I will provide. And so I'm not encouraging that everyone should quit their jobs if it's not working well. Um, but I quit uh, a couple days before Advent. And I felt like God was also saying, um, don't look at any job boards during Advent. This is a season about waiting, and I want you to wait. Uh, so I did. I waited. <laughs> and, you know, God ended up providing. There were friends who, who had not, no knowledge of our situation, and they would send money through Venmo or, or mail a check. Our parents uh, pulled through in ways that we never would have anticipated. We were able to survive and even to, to enjoy life. Yet, even in this period of holy hope, that was hope, like, it, there were no possibilities that made that hope make sense. We just did it. But even in that, I fell prey to optimism. So in January, after, after not applying for all of December, I started looking and I found one that looked great. In fact, I knew this was the job. Why? It was at a church where the pastor was best friends with the pastor at the old church I worked at. I had met this pastor. I had even created resources for their church to use. Not only was I qualified for the job, I had, you know, relational ins, and the job looked amazing. It looked like everything I would want to do. So I apply, start looking at apartments in the area. Like, I'm pretty sure this is what all this was about, God. You had me quit this other thing so that I could find this, and I had to wait and learn all that stuff, sure. But this is it. Well, I get all excited. I start thinking of all the different ways this can work. I'm looking at apartments. I'm going there, this and that. About two weeks after applying, I'm in line at the grocery store, you know, look at my emails, and I get that sort of canned response. Thank you for applying. We have received more uh, applications than we were anticipating, and we will not be moving forward with, uh, with you. And I will tell you, my heart sunk. I could feel it in the store. I had to leave the line and go in the car, and I started weeping because I was sure this was what God wanted. This was what everything was leading up to. I surveyed all the possibilities, and this was clearly it. I felt let down <clears throat> and uncared for by God. 
but it was because of my own optimism, sort of saying, this is what God is promising me. Again, there's nothing wrong with being optimistic about the future, about a job prospect, a dating prospect, political prospect. The danger is in equating that optimism with the Christian virtue of hope. Friends, in this pandemic, optimism will not be enough. None of us can predict the future, and none of us will be able to make predictions of God's will based on the source information at hand. And if we do, I'll tell you, it's unlikely that we're going to like what we predict. We'll be left with disappointment, not joy. The kind of hope that we need this Advent is an inbreaking from God, a surprise of hope that can sustain our faith in this barren season. We need the hope of Zechariah and Elizabeth. Of course, even Zechariah's hope isn't perfect. If you notice in the text, he gets, um, he gets silenced, and the angel Gabriel says it's because you didn't believe. He's made silent until Elizabeth conceives. And then even after she conceives, Elizabeth remains hidden for five months, the text says. Not as a punishment, it just lets us know. She doesn't let anybody see her and her pregnancy for five months. I think this is because oftentimes the place for hope's gestation is in hidden silence. Not silence from the voice of God, but silence from our own attempts to optimistically dictate a future we like. And not hiddenness from the presence of God, but hiddenness from the world's prescription to our problems, which especially during this season is often consumption or numbing out. We need to remain hidden and silent from those things. All of Israel was feeling 400 years of barrenness, waiting for God to birth something new. And I know a lot of us are feeling the same way. And Advent, friends, is an invitation to enter deeper into that waiting. Elizabeth doesn't give birth to a savior. John the Baptist is not the Messiah. The story, as we begin Advent, it isn't about birthing salvation. Not yet. It's about simply birthing hope. It's a birth that says another birth is coming. It's a prophecy about a prophet, about one who says what is to come. It's a story of rejoicing, but rejoicing in waiting. Jesus, of course, is the promised Messiah they were waiting for. Today, though, the angel foretells about John, and then John foretells about Jesus. And then 30 more years of waiting. All of this, all of this waiting for what? Three years of ministry? Three years of healing and preaching and eating with? This is it. This is the Messiah in our midst. And then the cross. Then the end of all this hope. 
400 years of silence and waiting. For what? For humiliating death on a Roman cross? No. No, there's another gloriously surprising, hope-inducing, inbreaking of God into impossibility. Resurrection. Friends, in Christ, there is more hope than we know what to do with. The loudest song of the resurrection is more than enough rhythm to get us to dance. During this season, as you might feel like trees in winter, remember your hidden life beneath the soil. In Christ, you are rooted deep in the soil of God, the spirit of resurrection, the spirit who is always birthing something new until the day we wait no more. Amen.